Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, imagine throughout your youth hearing the story from your dad about how he entertained troops in his POW camp during World War II with a comic strip. And then years after his death, getting those comic strips back. Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to Morgan Weisling, an artist from California, about the miraculous return of his dad's artwork from World War II. Plus, we'll talk to Raymond from Team Red in the most recent season of Relative Race from BYU TV. That's all this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover, gather, connect, a presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Welcome to America's Family History Show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth, on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. And this episode is brought to you by BYU TV's Relative Race. It is season six, and we're down to the final episode this weekend. Sunday nights at 8 o'clock Eastern, 5 o'clock Pacific, but of course, and you can stream it all over the place. Hey, it's great to have you along. Great guests again today. You know, last week we touched on this story about the Weisling family. Howard, the father, had been in World War II and was in a POW camp. And using cigarette papers, he created comic strips that went around the POW camp. And recently, his son, Morgan Weisling, got these things back. And how they were found and how he got them is an incredible miracle. And we're going to talk to Morgan, who's an artist himself, a little bit later on in the show in two parts about his dad's story, all about the cartoons, how he got them back. It's going to be a great visit, and we're really looking forward to it. Plus, Team Red. Yeah, Raymond and his wife had a great run on Relative Race on BYU TV, and we're going to talk to Raymond coming up here at the back end of the show. And, of course, another segment of Ask Us Anything. Right now, it's time to check in with Boston and David Allen Lambert, the Chief Genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. How are you, David? I'm doing great. I just want these leaves to stop falling for once. That way, every time I'm done raking, I don't have to do it again. Yeah, I know. There's no stopping it. We've got some huge cottonwood trees in our yard, and they dump very late in the season, and I hate it. But, uh, oh, well, what are you going to do? Hey, we got some great family histoire news today and really interesting stuff, starting with a passing that wasn't uh, too far from your neck of the woods. That's true. They're actually up in Laconia, New Hampshire, when 90-year-old Werner Gustav Donor died. He was an 8-year-old on the Hindenburg fish. Yes. And uh, it's it's amazing. They're all gone now. But he was an 8-year-old, and his mother and him survived. However, his father and sister did not. Right. He was yeah. actually thrown by his mother off the Hindenburg. And if you're not familiar with the Hindenburg story, I think most people are, it was a Nazi dirigible. And this was before the war, and they were flying from Germany across to New Jersey. And as it was about to land, it caught on fire. And there was a live broadcast going on at the time, and there's a famous uh, announcer quote. You can hear him going, well, here comes the dirigible. Oh, and it's on fire. Oh, the humanity. Oh, the people. Oh, the passengers. It's a very dramatic thing. And uh, I was shocked to learn there was a survivor still living from that experience. Yeah. Unbelievable. Like with the Titanic and World War One, we're losing these people that have that connect from long ago, and soon we'll have people that weren't even alive during the Great Depression. Right. Well, you know, one story that's really in the news today is, of course, Tom Hanks portraying Mr. Rogers in who would have thunk they are actually related? Ancestry.com, through their research and some DNA, has now proved that they are six cousins. So 
So Fred Rogers, fifth great-grandfather, was Johannes Mefford. Well, Mefford had a couple of sons, and one of them was Fred's fourth great-grandfather, William, who served in the Navy, captured by the British in 1782, was held in Barbados and Antigua in a prison ship, released 10 months later. Tom Hanks is related to one of the other brothers, and he was in a skirmish in the Chesapeake Bay. I love that. I see the family resemblance, don't you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, it makes you wonder, though, why wouldn't we research connections like this for all these actors who play historic figures and see if there's a tie? I mean, I think that's really interesting. We'll have to check if Paul Giamatti actually is John Adams' cousin. Right, right yeah. <laughs> okay, well, you know, this is an update to a story we talked about last week. Out in King High School in Tampa, Florida, they have determined now through the ground-penetrating radar, which I'm still hoping for for Christmas, there are actually 145 coffins, or at least grave shafts, that are three to six feet down, located right adjacent to the high school. Wow, to the building itself, but it's on the grounds. The good mm-hmm. news is it wasn't under the football field. And that, that always bothered me because I thought, how would those kids feel about knowing they had been playing football over the graves of all these people? I mean, it's just, <sighs> ugh, you know? Yeah, it's scary. Well, hopefully um, either that will be set aside as a cemetery and they'll mark the area appropriately, or they'll be removed by you know, forensic archaeologists and reburied in a proper place. Mm-hmm. You know, we always talk about the illegitimacies in the royal family, and endogamy and paternity can always be a player in looking at royal ancestry. And the aristocracy in general. Exactly. But it turns out that it's really the people who are working downstairs or the people who are living down the street. Illegitimacy with the lower classes was, over the past 500 years, was very common with the urban poor, their geneticists are saying. Yeah, in fact, they're saying that farmers who are way out there, they had a very low illegitimacy rate, only like half of a percent. But you get into the urban areas and the lower classes, it was like 6%. And -hmm. that went quite contrary to what the expectation was of those who put this study together. So really interesting. You can see the link on ExtremeGenes.com. Well, here's a new one that's coming up, and I think people would probably want to know about it. It actually ties into my blogger spotlight. My blogger spotlight this week shines on Lara Diamond, and Lara has a blog called Lara's Genealogy, J-E-W-N-E-A-L-O-G-Y, that can be reached at larasgenealogy.blogspot.com. She alerted me personally to something that's of great interest to our listeners. If your ancestors came over in the early 20th century and never became a citizen, it's possible that they had an A file, an alien registration required starting in 1940. Currently, these files now cost $240. They're looking at raising them fish to $625 for a single file. But the catch on this, and I'm hoping Lara can talk more with us soon, is that they really fall under freedom of information. So technically, there should be a lower fee. Wow. We'll have to look more into that. You know, I'm always looking for stories that are fascinating and inspiring and uplifting. And uh, it was really fun to discover this man's story. His name is Morgan Weisling. He's in Santa Clarita, California, near Los Angeles. And uh, Morgan, welcome to Extreme Genes. It's great to have you. Uh, thanks for having me. Now, your dad was in World War II, and as I understand it, it was like his initial run on a plane, and he got shot down and wound up in a POW camp? That pretty much sums it up. Really? Okay. <laughs> was he in the Air Corps? Was that what it was? He was in the Army Air Corps. He was a flight engineer with a crew of eight, and they got hit over Austria, actually. And when the pilot could see that it wasn't probably going to make it back, 
he said, you know, we're going to have to all jump out. And so that's what they did, and they, they all got captured and were put in Stalag 1 in Barth, Germany prison camp. So they actually all ended up together in the same barracks. So what year are we talking about here? This is 44. Okay. And how old was Dad at that time? Um, you know, that's a good question. I honestly don't know exactly, <laughs> but he was a young guy. Sure. Well, he <laughs> like they be. all were, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, you figure also in 44, uh, if he was just getting in at that point, then he was probably about 18 or 19, right? Yeah, yeah, he was he was probably about 19, I would, I would imagine. So they parachute out, they hit the ground, and what happens? Well, some of them got captured immediately. My dad actually took three days. Uh, he hid in a barn of, of a farmer who found him, gave him a meal, and then called the Germans oh boy. To, to come and get him. And so they all took a train into uh, Germany, birth Germany, and... Um, you know, originally were put into solitary and kind of, you know, gone through this, the usual routine that prisoners of war all had mm-hmm. to go through. And then it was just living in a prison camp. For him, the main problem was starvation constantly going on. Wow. Um, that, was, that was the big thing. Uh, they didn't torture them or anything like that, but they, they just didn't feed them. And so food was constantly on his mind all the time. And I have one of his journals that um, he kept there were simply recipes of things that he wants to combine and try to eat when he comes back if he gets out of there and have his mother make for him. Just, I mean, list after list of list of foods. And all he did was obsess on food uh, because, you know, that's all that was on his mind. How long was he in there? A year. One year. So yeah. here, here's a kid, and you just think, man, here's a, somebody who would be just starting in college probably at that point in their lives and just sitting there stuck not knowing if they're going to survive, starving, and they're with a bunch of other guys. How many other people, how many other prisoners were in the camp? Uh, you know, I don't know what the population was in the entire camp. I just know in his barracks he drew a picture of the actual you know, room that they they stayed in, and it looked like there was about uh, let's see, four, four. There was about twelve to fourteen of them in one barrack room. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And you mentioned drawing because I know that uh, Howard Weisling, your father, was into art, and he had kind of aspirations to go in that direction, didn't he? Before the war. Yeah. When when he was growing up, he was great at drawing, and he loved storytelling. And he loved the comic strips of that time period in the 30s, which were Prince Valiant, Flash Gordon, and, you know, all the ones, Dick Tracy, all those ones that he wanted to someday grow up in, that's what he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. He wanted to have his own comic strip and tell his own stories. And Pearl Harbor came along, and uh, he enlisted right away, and uh, he thought uh, it would be a smart idea to you know, get into the Army Air Corps because that he might survive that better mm-hmm. than than if he was a ground troop. And so, um, you know, little did he know that would cause him to end up as a POW. Yeah. That's what it did. <laughs> wow, no question. But but he used this then as kind of a survival tactic in this POW camp. 
Well, it's very boring, in, uh, in your, in, it was very boring in that particular camp. Sure. It wasn't a concentration camp, obviously. Right. Uh, the, you know, that was a whole other kind of thing. This was a POW camp. So basically, and it was mostly Americans, and they were bored. They were literally just trying to survive with little food and bored, and the morale was very low. And he saw that as an opportunity to fulfill his dream as a comic strip artist. So he started collecting cigarette wrappers because the back of them were white and blank. And he makeshift a sketchbook out of all these wrappers and then started a daily serial comic strip, which he told me it was like he, by the time one panel got passed around the entire camp, it was about three days before it would get back to him to continue the story. So he would continue this long-running storyline that everyone would look forward to wondering what's going to happen next, and it kind of made them feel like they were back home getting their newspaper with a comic strip. And I grew up from the time I was, you know, before I could talk, hearing that story and looking at my dad as just the coolest hero to me because I loved art and I loved that he used it to help, you know, kind of bring everybody else around and and have some morale, uh, you know, pumped up. And so I just looked at him as a hero, that, that story, yes. and I, I told that story um, as I became a famous artist. I have a website that has that whole story on it and how that influenced me as, as an artist myself. Thinking that was it. Now, part of that story was always, Dad, did you bring any of those drawings home? I just, that would mean so much to me, being what I became, Gosh, right? I'd love to have a couple of those drawings because then I, when I tell this story someday, I could show them to people. And he said, no, you know, when the Russians came in and liberated the camp, he didn't even know where they were. You know, they were always sure. being passed around, and it wasn't the main thing on his mind, you know. <laughs> there was a lot going on in that camp when the Russians came in. But, uh, you know, I said, well, Dad, um, you know, that's a really bummer part of that story. And I... <laughs> I really wish you had grabbed a couple. Sure. And later, you know, as I continue to always tell people this story, and it was always the, do you have any of them? And no. He eventually passed away at, at 83, and I, that was the end of the story, I thought, until a few years after his death. That's when I got the part of this story that really gets interesting. <laughs> well, it does really get interesting because you got them all back. And how this happened is just incredulous to me. Who found them? Good, good question. Um, yeah, uh, so I, I, you know, I'm a well-known artist, and so people find me very easily. On and, and so I get emails every day of people and asking me questions and stuff. And all of a sudden, I walk into my studio one day and I, I check my emails, and there's this one that is from a man from. Uh, it's an older gentleman, he says, and he's a he used to be a businessman in New York, and. Um, he read my bio and realized that he definitely has the right guy, but he goes, I think I have some of the drawings that your father did when he was a POW. And, I'm, oh. and, then, and then he ended it with, would you be interested? <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding? What? You have a <laughs> you flight know? today, right? Are you kidding me? And uh, I cried. I literally sure. just course. started crying. And, and, and he put his phone number there, and so I immediately called him. And he told me this crazy story. At that time of that call that I called him, 20 years ago, he had a business in New York with two other business partners, and one of them embezzled a lot of money 
And before they caught him, he went and spent it all on Nazi artifacts, a whole truckload of them. So they, they caught the guy before, after he spent the money, couldn't get the money back, and now they've got a truckload of Nazi artifacts. And he said, we're Jewish. Of all the things this guy did, <laughs> oh my. he bought stuff from the Holocaust. You know, yeah. like, that's the worst possible thing in their minds. And so he said, we were just disgusted. And in this truck were three of Hitler's watercolors and and billy clubs and batons from Auschwitz and, and Mengele's uniform oh. and dinnerware and all this crud that had Nazi stuff all over it. And he goes, we were just didn't know what to do. So we started donating it to Holocaust museums and other things. And he said, you know, we just want to get rid of all of it. But I kept a couple little items back because I could tell they weren't Nazi. They looked like they were something that the POW had done. So I decided to keep them, and then I held on to them for 20 years. And it ended up being my dad's drawings, two books of my dad's drawings. And he said, I was recently moving, and I was looking at them again and saw that his name is on the cover of one of the books. And so I looked up the last name, and he immediately found me because my name is very unusual. And uh, it was just like, well, you want me to send them to you? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's it's just it's fantastic, Morgan, and and yeah. you just must be giddy about it. And and so, what have you done with them since? Well, he FedExed them to me, and and that was a big deal. Just waiting for that truck. Yeah. I've never <laughs> in my life waited so long for a truck to drive up. Sure. And it was just a big deal. And you know, I opened that and held that book that was you know. <laughs> it was done 75 years ago. Yeah. And, and he just, all I could think of was, first of all, I feel like I'm getting a piece of my father back. Of course you were. He's yeah. telling me these stories now, and I never really knew the story itself. He never actually told me what the story was in this comic strip. And now I'm holding it in my hands, and he's telling me the story for the first time. And he's, got, he's been dead now for like seven years at this point. And now all of a sudden, you know, here he is telling me the story. And... You couldn't help but wonder, where have you been sure. <laughs> all these years? Because <laughs> the last I heard, uh, Russian tanks were coming in, and I would just have imagined everything just getting grinded under yeah, the level. tanks. You know, like nothing's going to survive, and then all of a sudden, here these are. And one of the ways it survived was the, the way my dad had put these books together. He had taken uh, tin cans that were looked like they were army olive drab cans of some sort, probably from, uh, you know, the Geneva Convention would sometimes give them cans of something, I, I think, at, at the camps. So he would flatten out the can. He, he would uh, take the, the lids off, flatten it out, and he made a binding out of two tin cans, put a nail through it, and held all the papers inside of the wrappers and made it like a sketchbook. Well, because it was encased both sides in metal, it survived being passed around the camp, first of all, but then it survived who knows where yeah. it's been throughout the years. And, and just that it ended up in my hands again is a miracle. You know, just, it wow. Is. It's got to be one of the greatest things that's ever happened in your life. And the story was a Western, which I hadn't even known that, and I became a Western artist as an artist. That was so wow. ironic. It kind of came full circle. He's, he's telling stories about the Old West, and it's exactly what I ended up doing. Isn't that but, something? But, uh, and not only that was, was I given this book with you know hundreds of these drawings in it, 
uh, of the story, but the other book was a complete surprise, too. Um, it wasn't just one book. Um, the guy who, who I talked to on the phone, he said, we had two books, and one of them I gave to the other partner, and I haven't talked to him in 20 years, and I don't know if he still has it, but I could call and try to find him, and literally two days later, the other book showed up. Oh. That, that other man, who I don't even, I never got to talk to, immediately just said, oh yeah, sure, I'll send it, and I, I got both books miraculously, and the other book was a record of his time in the prison camp. Not only did he record all the names and signatures of everyone else in the camp, but he also had um, like an account of what happened when they were liberated. And, you know, there's literally a, a, a 1024, we woke up and there's Americans in the, uh, in the uh, guard tower. Uh, 1140, they just announced Hitler is dead. All these kinds oh. of rec- records of stuff going on at that moment. And also drawings of things that he had seen in the, in the train ride on the way to the camp of different landmarks and obviously kept this hidden because yeah. the, the Germans would have immediately thought he was a spy having recorded like what the camp looked like, you know, and he was just recording things all the time. And so it was like, wow, this is just incredible. <laughs> you know, this treasure trove of information that suddenly ended up in my lap so many years later. I bet you just can't get your brain around it sometimes. Uh, so do you have it on display? Do you have it loaned to museums? What I, are you I, doing with it? I, I'm keeping it in the family. I, I, um, you know, I, try, I try to tell this story whenever I can, and I, I brought them to lectures that I give and different things that I, I I'm, as an artist, I'm always having to talk to gr- groups of people all the time, and I always share this. And so I show them to people and let them actually you know, touch them and see them. But then I put them back under lock and key. Uh, you oh, know, bank. yeah. You know, because if my house burned down, that'd be the first thing I'd be worried about. Like, oh, no. So I always keep them in a safe deposit box and just don't even want to have them, you know. Uh, I live in a fire area. We're in oh, California. Yeah. So, you know, we're being evacuated <laughs> like every week around here. Yeah, and your power's being cut out a lot, too, yeah, it isn't is. it? I mean, it's gosh. All the time. All the time. That's it because of PG&E. I'm overwhelmed with the story, first of all. As you were telling it, I was getting emotional just listening to you. It's just, I mean, the idea that you would get that piece of your father back, which was obviously one of those events in his life that uh, defined his life, wouldn't you say? That was the defining moment. You know, it really was. And it was one of those things that, uh, you know, when you're a POW, I don't think you ever, ever go through a day probably that you don't remember you're a POW. You you sure. went through something that is not like anything else. You know, it, it's just. Uh, and as he got older in life, he talked more about it, and he and he kind of used to not share the uh, the bad parts of it. He tried as a kid to give me more of the uplifting things that may have happened in the camp. Mm-hmm. But um, I saw it become more like. A, flooding back to him as he became weaker as a human being and, and, and frail, it all really started to um, come back to him. And it, it, it psychologically was actually like terrifying at moments for him because it was suddenly coming back, but he wasn't really prepared physically or mentally to handle some of those memories. So I was sad to see it later in life. But as I grew up, in fact, here's a question he always I get asked, and you know, what was it like? And he, what did he say it was like? And I said, Dad, we've watched 
The Great Escape together. We watch Stalock 17. We all these prisoner of war movies. Which one is the closest to the way it really was? And he goes, none of them. There's only one, one show on TV that actually just immediately makes him feel like he's back in the camp, and it was Hogan's Heroes. I was going to ask, Hogan's Heroes. <laughs> Believe it or not, he said it's the most accurate thing he's ever seen. It's really? just like the way the barracks looked, the way the camp looked, the outside camp. Even the way that politics worked, there really was like a clink. Uh-huh. And, and, he, and, then, and there was a real Hogan because they had this one um, captain that was the, 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 the leader for the Americans who would fight and get their rights as best they could for what they needed from Clink, you know, the guy that was the Clink. Well, there, there <laughs> was the Geneva Convention, and there were yes. rules for, for prisoners of war, which often were not followed. And it was the American captains that definitely was the one who had to constantly be fighting for those rules to be kept. And so he fought for it, and he said that, that that guy really, you know, kept them alive sometimes because he would go to bat for them. And it's amazing that they would listen, you know, sure. that there really was a, a structure involved where they would try to keep the Americans happy at some point, you know, with certain things. But have, have you ever thought about how amazing it is that these books survived because of the fact they had to have done inspections in these barracks at some point or another? Well, like Hogan's Heroes, he told me they had secret, like, things going on. In fact, the very first thing, the Americans took him aside as soon as he entered camp and all the new guys, and they, one by one, the Americans uh, interrogated each guy and said, do you have any information that would be helpful to the Allies for bombing situations or anything you could say that you saw on the ride over here, anything, we could get you out. Wow. We, we do have the ability, but we will never use it unless you absolutely have something crucial for the effort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My dad saw nothing of usefulness. He had to stay. But it sounds like Hogan's hero. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it really does. He's Morgan Weisling. He is the son of Howard Weisling, who was uh, shot down over Germany in 1944, spent a year in a POW camp and uh, drew cartoons to entertain his colleagues for that year. And just recently, Morgan has gotten them all back miraculously there in the family. And uh, I, I know that everybody listening right now is, is just got to be absolutely thrilled for you, Morgan, and, oh, uh, and have enjoyed hearing the story. Absolutely. So I thank you so much for your time and coming on and sharing it and uh, wish you the best and, and enjoy sharing that story for generations on end in your family. Thank you. And uh, once again, I'm very pleased to have a representative from Team Red on the show this week from BYU TV's Relative Race. It's Raymond. And uh, Raymond, boy, what an adventure you had. And unfortunately, I saw you get eliminated here in uh, Episode 9 this past week. But you had quite the run, didn't you? Yeah, it was a great run. And more than a great run, I was able to meet a lot of family, get a lot of questions answered, just meet some very significant people in my family. But more than a run, it was just a, a lot of closure. Yeah, a lot of closure. Well, you know, from the beginning, we saw that you've had a big struggle because you were given up for adoption and uh, you had heard that there was a brother that was kept and you were given up and you didn't understand that. And they felt like, well, what did I do? And then, uh, of course, you learned both parents are deceased, but you got the story of your origins and what a difference that's got to make in your life. Yeah. Like you said, unfortunately, both of my parents are deceased. But it's so many people that are still alive that can tell the stories to me and, and kind of give me some answers I need. But some of this has become a thing of getting closure and opening myself to being 
ready for the next chapter of my life. So me and my brother, I can tell you, that's one of the best days of my life. We talk every day or just about every day. And he probably has the best heart I know, better than mine, <laughs> better than oh, anybody I know. So You got a good heart. And I saw you with your brother, and he was obviously really ready to be there for you. And now yeah. the show obviously uh, taped sometime back earlier this year. What's it been like now? Obviously, he is your closest relative. What has that relationship been like since you first met him? From the day I met him, even on the race, um, when it was time to leave the next day, he was like, man, so you got to go so soon? You know what I mean? Like, we just met. His spirit is infectious. Like, on my birthday, he sent me cards. Just for Father's Day, he sent stuff in the mail. Just the best guy. He really wanted to make sure that my life was okay and that I was well-adjusted and I, I wasn't in a bad situation. So we talk all the time. We confide in each other. I tell him stuff that I probably don't tell anybody else. It's been awesome. I love having a big brother. That's just so great. And, you know, I've helped people who have been through a similar situation, things they didn't know. And then when they do find out about it, it clears their heads up in some way. It's just miraculous, the healing power of finding family and getting those answers. What were your symptoms, I guess is the best word for it, before you had this happen? And what's life been like since in terms of sleep and what your thought processes are day to day? What's that like? Yeah, it's funny because I probably sleep more than I need to now, but um, <laughs> but it's so peaceful. But my daughter, really, as much as I am as affected by it, she always is talking about, I want to talk to Uncle Lamont, and then Journey and Justice, which are my nieces, his daughters, they met up and connected immediately. And now she doesn't want to go a month without going to see them. It's always about how soon can we get down there? And I'm like, baby, that's not walking distance. we got to plan that out. <laughs> but... It's like a whole piece of the life that was missing from me. I have it now, and I have it at a time when I can appreciate it. I'm mature enough to understand it. And we still talk about a lot of the answers that neither one of us have, so it's great. And it was fun to watch Nicole, your wife, the whole time. She was just there for you through the whole experience. And uh, how's she feeling about life now? You know, she'll tell you this herself. Like, when I'm talking to my brother, she'll just come stand in the room and just watch it because she said it just amazes her. She loves Love, love the relationship that myself and Lamont has. And, and she even keeps in touch with not just Lamont, but almost everybody from the show. She's really good at that. I, I have a lot to be desired in that way, but it's not from a lack of love or appreciation. It's amazing. It's Raymond from Team Red from BYU TV's Relative Race. Raymond, congratulations on an amazing run all the way through day nine and all the closure that you got. And everybody, I'm sure, is very happy for you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And coming up next, it's another edition of Ask Us Anything. David Allen Lambert will be back to answer your question. And, uh, David, you are right there in the heart of Mayflower country, so this question hits right at home. It's from Donna in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. She says, where are the passenger lists for the Mayflower? (laughs) Wouldn't we all love to know? Right? Well, Donna, the answer to that lies in the second governor's journal. William Bradford, whom millions of people are descended from, was a far-thinking person. As far as keeping a journal, it's called Of Plymouth Plantation, and he recalls the passengers. He recalls the people that died the first winter and, of course, has access himself to the Mayflower Compact, where the original does not exist anymore, and transcribed that into his journal. And this very valuable book is preserved and exists today, but there is no passenger list. If you want to get the updated scholarship that goes 
goes beyond Bradford's work, you would want to look at Robert Charles Anderson, who's been a guest on Extreme Genes before. He wrote a book back in 2004 called The Pilgrim Migration, Immigration to Plymouth Colony between 1620 and 1633. And that's still the benchmark for talking about the first people into the colony, including those that came over after the Mayflower. Isn't that amazing? And to think that this journal somehow survived, and it was like the only real record of all this. Where would Mm -hmm. we be, David, if that journal had been burned, say, in a skirmish with the natives, right? Right. Or later on, because it wound up back in England and was held secretly over there for, uh, what, centuries, because there was some fear over in England that descendants of the pilgrims were going to come back and try to claim property over there that had belonged to their ancestors if they knew who they were, right? Absolutely. And so finally, this came over here at the end of the 19th century. It it, it got back in American hands, and thank goodness it did. But it was really the only record of the whole thing. Otherwise, we wouldn't know the name of the ship. We wouldn't know the content of the Mayflower Compact. We wouldn't Mm -hmm. know who the passengers were. We might be able to figure some of them out. But I would assume we would just know them as those people who settled at Plymouth, right? That there was an early colony there. Well, it's kind of like Roanoke. Do we have a complete list of everybody? And was there a journal? Jamestown, all the Indian fights that were going on with the Powhatan Indians. I mean, was there a journal there? Well, no. Well, I mean, maybe scant documentation, but of Plymouth Plantation, which is a really good read, especially if you're descendant from anybody who was on the Mayflower, you're really getting kind of the, the heartbeat of what was going on. And Bradford wrote pretty eloquently about the goings on of the colony at that point in time. And it, does preserve that history in one volume. So It's amazing detail, what's in there. And if you find you have Mayflower ancestry, I found mine uh, eight years ago now, coming up in December. And it was an absolute thrill because I knew what kind of history was waiting for me when I got into it, mm-hmm. finding out what, what my people did at that time. And suddenly that story that I had read about as a kid so much became part of my story. And that changed everything about how interested I would be in it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Gives a different twist on Thanksgiving, doesn't it? There you go. Thank you, Donna, for the question. A great question. And, of course, if you have a question for Ask Us Anything, all you have to do is email us at askusanything at extremegenes.com. David, thanks so much. Have a great Thanksgiving, and we will talk to you again next week. All right, my friend. Well, that is our show for this week, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks to Morgan Weisling, yeah, the artist in California whose dad was a POW in World War II and created these little cartoons on cigarette wrappers, cigarette papers that he passed around the POW camp. Talk to you again next week, and remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.